Open your Bibles again with me to Romans uh, chapter 12 as we come back to this practical, hard-hitting section of Scripture from verses 9 all the way to the end of the chapter, an immensely practical section and comes at us with rapid-fire succession on the issue of Christian love. All these little short phrases, which may appear to some to be sort of haphazard and uh, maybe jumbled together, a little disconnected, and there's a tendency to want to race past sections like this, certainly in preaching, but we have taken a different route. We have taken the slow route, the meditative route. In fact, I've been thinking as we've been studying through this, this is maybe one of the more quoted chapters in all of Scripture because everyone always cross-references back to this chapter out of other passages because of the truths that are contained here. So we're going to take our time and try to soak in what Paul is saying here. And that's a little difficult to do because, as we said, these are just a number of short little phrases, really nouns and participles. There's no main verb anywhere in here. Paul just seems to be grouping together a bunch of qualities. But as we've said in weeks past, these are qualities that really flow out of everything he said in verses 1 and 2 about a transformed life, about someone who is meditating on the mercies of God, who is understanding the grace of God and the love of God in their life. And this all, uh, this all emanates in what we have called unhypocritical love. That's really the, the subject heading of verse 9. Among all these little phrases, that's where Paul begins. He talks about this unhypocritical or sincere love and sort of launches into that. And he mentions, as you go all the way through this list, love a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. And we begin to realize that the whole section is about that. It's all about relationships. It's all about affection, brotherly affection, living in harmony, loving your enemies, having proper relationships. It's all about how you treat people, how you respond to people. It's all about love. And so, as we have been approaching this, we've been thinking of it in terms of those realities. Love, as we have said in the past, inside and out. Because as Paul moves to this section, he's dealing with those internal attitudes that affect how we love other people, and he's also dealing with the external actions that come from those attitudes. Or in some cases, he's dealing with love inside of the church, how we treat one another. In other cases, he's dealing with love outside of the church. How do we treat people who persecute us? But all the way through the section, that appears to be the common theme. This love that flows out of our own understanding of Christ. And so we've been grouping this together as 15 responses to God's love and mercy in our lives. We saw a few weeks ago, the first one there in verse 9, which we just simply said God's love and mercy would demand that we be sincere, that love be genuine, as he says, that there's no pretend love, no hypocritical love. And he adds to that in verse 9 that it also be discerning. That is, that, that this is not permissive or indulgent whenever we love one another, But even as it's loving others, it still understands what it is to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. Thirdly, Paul tells us that God's love and mercy in our lives will demand that we be family. As he says in verse 10, that we love one another with brotherly affection and 
and he just piles on, especially in the original language, words that are particularly associated with, with family love. And, he, and he's really talking about the kind of devotion, not so much the kind of emotion that we have towards one another. He's really talking about how we remain devoted to one another. And then last week, or, or two weeks ago, we saw a number of qualities that had to do with We might say periods of discouragement in our life when we saw in verse 11 that love calls us to be enthusiastic, enthusiastic in service. Don't be slothful, he says, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Don't let your spiritual vitality be sapped and don't allow your, your zeal and your enthusiasm to deteriorate. In fact, it ought to be growing as you go through your Christian life. He adds to that in verse 12. That we need to be positive in struggles. We need to, as he says, rejoice in hope. Don't lose your joy in the midst of struggles. Or as he says in number uh, our sixth uh, quality, be patient in trial. Building on the idea of hope in tribulation, Paul says you need to add to that patience. In fact, Romans 5 says uh, that, that patience or endurance produces hope. So they go hand in hand. And it's all tied together with the third quality there in verse 12, that we are prayerful, or as Paul says, constant in prayer, that in the midst of this patient endurance of trials and this steadfastness and hope, that we don't stop believing that God is hearing us, that as we pray to Him, He he knows our needs. Well, today we come to a new set of these qualities, another section of this This passage, beginning in verse 13, when we add to those first seven qualities an eighth one, an eighth response to God's mercy and love in our lives, and that is God's love and mercy demand that we be generous, that we be generous. As Paul says there in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, This is a result of a heart that is motivated properly by the grace of God who properly understands what God's grace has done in your life. When you're caught up in His love and His mercy, you are moved to show that same kind of kindness and mercy toward other people. You want to demonstrate it because you have received it. And it manifests itself in a generous spirit towards the needs of others. Now the statement is self-explanatory, but I think the, the problem is that we don't really contemplate, when Paul says that, exactly the kind of generosity that grace ought to generate. And we think that, you know, we're going you know, to double our, our giving to the church. We're going to go from $1 to 2 next year because we're going to be generous or we're going we're gonna to drop a, something in the uh, the, the, the plate of the guy out in front of the, the, the Walmart at Christmas, and we're going to give a little something there. And we think that we have sort of rung that bell or checked that box of generosity in our hearts, when in fact the standard is much, much higher. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look over at 2 Corinthians 8, because I couldn't think of a better way to demonstrate this than to pick up on the example of the Macedonian churches that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's writing that section of Scripture to the Corinthians who were basically in southern Greece 
about the Macedonian churches that were in the northern part of Greece. This would have been Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And it's all about this, this offering that he's taking up, this collection that he's taking up for the saints in Jerusalem because they were on hard times. And he's been now over a year trying to collect this money. In fact, he, in 1 Corinthians, he, he has to kind of scold them because they had started to uh, do this and he wanted to make sure they continued it. You get to 2 Corinthians and he's still having to come back to them, still having to plead with them because they have lagged behind in doing this. And so this is a campaign now that is dragging on much longer than Paul had hoped, but he has a goal and he's pressing toward it. And along the way, he wants to put in front of these Corinthians this description of the Macedonian churches who he says were very poor. They were extremely poor. The reasons for that were manifold. There was maybe behind it predominantly the fact that this had been the site of one of the fiercest battles in the civil war between uh, Anthony and Octavian uh, before the, the, the uh, beginning of the... Uh, the new era, the, the time of Christ, the A.D. era, back in the, around 40, 41 B.C., there had been a civil war that had devastated the area. They had never quite recovered, and so they were still living with a, with a, a lagging economy, high unemployment, high rent, all the things that go with that kind of hardship. They were very poor. And yet, Paul tells them that they have responded to his call with generosity. In fact, we don't even need to look here. We could just read from the letters of Philippi. We could read from the letters to Thessalonica that Paul himself wrote as he expressed his genuine gratitude, how not only were they supporting the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, they were supporting Paul's ministry. When he was down in wealthy Corinth, and he wasn't taking a penny from them, it was the Thessalonians and it was the Philippians who were giving money so that Paul could carry out the ministry down there. So here are some of the poorest within all the Roman Empire. And yet Paul says none of that deterred them, but they repeatedly sent these gifts, even outpacing the wealthier areas of southern Greece. And he writes this about him in chapter, chapter 8, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a, serve, a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So over and above all the other stuff they were doing, over and above all the support they had already given to Paul, they wanted to do more. They wanted to give now to this offering for the relief of the saints. And without going into a lot of detail, I, want, I thought we could just take note of a few key lessons from these Macedonians. Probably chief among them is that their generosity was motivated by grace. That's what Paul says. We want you to know about the grace of God that was at work among them. In other words, Paul says what's happening with this group of people, it's not explainable by, by human compassion. It's not explainable by personal connection. 
not explainable by all the things that might motivate people today to get involved with some worthy cause because it makes them feel good to go out and, and build a house you know, together in some rundown area or to be involved with uh, sending aid to um, you know, children in Africa or being in any of those campaigns, which themselves are not bad. But all of them, all of them are done equally, whether by believers or unbelievers. They're not really necessarily expressions of God's grace. But Paul says this was grace. This was something that went beyond normal means. This was God's work among them. This isn't just philanthropy. This isn't just some effort to soothe their conscience. This isn't just some phenomenon of human kindness. This is a a level of sacrifice that you can only explain by grace. Because their giving, the way they gave, was in response to what they had received. These were believers who were taking Jesus at His word to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And believing that all other things would be added to them in God's good time. It's one of the evidences of a transformed life. One of the evidences of someone who has clued into the grace of God. And as I said, the amazing thing is they're doing this for people that they had never met. They didn't know the believers in Jerusalem. They'd never seen them. They never would see them. They may not ever hear a a word in response to how the offering went. They may not know any of those things, but they didn't need that. They didn't need necessarily the feel-good moment, the payoff, whenever they, they see the completed project or the pictures or all that other stuff. They just gave because God had given to them. And so Paul says this was the grace of God. Not only that, you can see that their generosity was a source of real joy. He says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Paul, I think, intentionally sets those two things side by side. Extreme poverty and abundance of joy. Meaning that there were a lot of things that they could not claim in abundance. There's a lot of things that they couldn't afford. There's a lot of things that they couldn't say they had excess of. But one of the things that they could say they had excess, they had abundance and overflowing, was joy. Because what they did is invest what they had in that which yielded this greatest of gains. I read this week again about another multi-millionaire Wall Street banker who plunged to his death out of his luxury hotel room. And you just, you just realize how people pursue all of these uh, investments and all of these material things and they fill their life with these things that consume them and yet they are bankrupt when it comes to this kind of joy. In the midst of all these challenging circumstances, high taxes, everything that left them with nothing, or they couldn't generate a lot from their own labors even because of the, the economy, they found a way to generate a lot with just a few dollars, an abundance, a richness, that once it was produced, it could not be taken away from them by taxes, by thieves, by anything else. They invested where moth and rust does not corrupt and where thieves 
Do not break in and steal. Thirdly, Paul says that their giving wasn't prevented by their poverty. That's the other part of this. Not only did did they do it with joy, but they did it in spite of what he calls extreme poverty. In other words, when the opportunity came up, there was no, you know, sort of woe is me. They didn't respond by saying, they're, they're suffering in Jerusalem, why are you asking me? You see what I'm going through? None of that came to mind. In fact, they wanted to do this. They begged to do this. They did not let their poverty prevent them from participating in this. In fact, it wasn't just poverty, it was a whole test of affliction, as Paul says, a severe test of affliction. And we know, Paul says to the Philippians, that God had appointed, in Philippians 1-29, He had appointed that they would suffer, that they would go through the same kinds of trials that Paul himself had gone through, that there were threats from their countrymen, there were no doubt Efforts to push them out of society, maybe even of jobs. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. You suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So not only were the Philippians suffering, but he says the Thessalonians were suffering. They were all suffering. They were in severe affliction. Paul writes about it to them. He writes about it here. But in all those difficult circumstances, and all of it leading to this depth of poverty, none of it would allow them or none of it would cause them to be mired in self-pity. They just shared. You know, people always say, You know, I'd give more if I had more. You know that's not true. Jesus said, if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much, right? That's who these believers were. They were faithful. They were faithful to participate in the needs of the saints, contribute to the needs of the saints, not hindered, not prevented by their poverty. And then finally, we could just take note that they did it with eagerness. As he says in verse 3, for they gave according to... To their means, as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged for the opportunity because they knew that it came with favor. They knew that it came with blessing. They knew that it wasn't zero-sum loss. They knew that it was an investment that yielded certain rewards. And if you want to find out what those are, go on reading. Read the rest of chapter 8. Particularly read 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as Paul affirms the principle that those who give generously, who give bountifully the Lord entrust them with more. Back over in Romans chapter 12, this is the kind of believer Paul has in mind when he tells us, That the grace of God, the mercy of God working in our lives will cause us to contribute to the needs of the saints. It is the kind of believer like the Macedonian who's taken up with the grace of God becomes so intent on emulating that grace it overflows in generosity. Probably never a better picture of it than in the early church, Acts chapter 4, when it says that no one had need of anything, it says. 
In verse 34 of that chapter, it says, But those who had land, or even those who had houses, were selling their houses and laying the money at the apostles' feet so that they could take care of the needs of those who were in the church. Amazing generosity. All generated by the freshness of the work of grace in their life. Well, verse 13 gives us another response to God's mercy and love. It's the ninth in our list. It's not only this generosity, but Paul says we'll be also welcoming. We'll be welcoming. And it goes well with generosity when Paul says uh, that we should seek to show hospitality, another dimension of Christian love. And it's particularly relevant in the early church because there was a great need or a great shortage, we might say, of good housing or housing opportunities. And so you see not only here but throughout the New Testament this elevation of the idea of hospitality. People opening up their homes to one another, opening up their homes even to those who are traveling through. You see, in those days, there was no Holiday Inn. When you went somewhere, there was no place to stay. There were no real hotels. All there were, really, the only places that you could stay overnight, the only places you could get a bed were brothels. And Christians didn't want to do that, obviously. Missionaries who were going to preach the gospel in other lands didn't want to do that. They obviously didn't want to sleep out with the animals and the robbers, and so they, were, they depended on other Christians to open up their homes to them, to show them hospitality, to give them a place to stay. Many times to people they had never met, complete strangers, and they showed them the love of Christ. In fact, this word, hospitality, is the word for loving strangers. It takes the word for love, philos, and the word for stranger, xenos, and puts them together, philos, it's what it is. So it's really a word that we read and we probably associate all the wrong things with it. We think about dinner parties with our friends or getting people over for a, for a, a ball game or maybe cooking up a great meal and having some people just come hang out with us and we think that's hospitality. Or we hear people say of, of this lady or that lady, oh, she's got the gift of hospitality. And what we mean is when the people come over, she can lay out a spread. She's a great cook and she's a great hostess. And those are all fine and wonderful things, but that really is not what this is talking about. This is talking particularly in application to strangers, to people you don't know outside of your circles, not your close friend, not your family, but absolutely people you don't know. It begs the question... In your life and in your home, how many times have you in the last year opened up your home to people you had no connection to, except for common profession of faith in Christ? Complete strangers. This is about loving people who aren't necessarily your friends. This is all about a particular kind of love aimed at those who don't know you and in many cases may never be able to repay you. Remember Jesus said this, if you give a dinner party, don't invite your friends, don't invite your brothers, your relatives, but go out, he says in Luke 14, go out when you give a feast and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Those would have been people 
that, that the average Jew never associated with. But this is what the grace of God does in your life. It causes you to go beyond your comfort areas, to go beyond your common group, to go beyond your family, and to reach out to those that you do not know. And it may not be in your home. It might be just here. It might be on a Sunday morning when everything's all said and done and we're, we're closing up the shop and turning out the lights. Who is the group of people that you are seeking out? In fact, Paul uses a word here. He says, pursue hospitality. It's the same word that's used in other places to talk about persecution, to, to, to go after somebody. And what he's saying that is that the grace of God ought to cause us to want to go beyond the normal circle of people that we feel comfortable around to go out and to find those that may not be themselves included in any group and bring them in. Not just providing meals, but providing them friends. Loving strangers as a matter of your life. It's one of the essential characteristics of spiritual maturity. That's why whenever Paul gives a list for qualifications for pastors and elders, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, he says this is one of the essential things you'll see in an elder is that they are commonly doing this. They are going outside of their group. They're going outside of their circle. They're finding people they don't know. They're bringing them in. An elder, in other words, is not someone who isolates himself with just a few close friends and family. He's one who's not remote. He's not isolated from everyone else. He is actively pursuing those relationships. And 1 Peter 4.9 says you do this without grumbling. You do this without grumbling. In other words, this isn't a grudging thing. You open up your home with joy. You open up your life with joy. You're not complaining, oh, not, that, not, not this again. One more night where I've got to lay aside whatever my selfish pursuits are. One more time when I just have to bear up and, and, and listen to someone else's stories and someone else's, you know, uh, uh, whatever it might be. I'm going to have to divert my attention from my entertainment. That's not the attitude. You do it with joy. Why do you do it? Because you were once far off. And God brought you near because He demonstrated this grace to you. There's a tenth response in verse 14. Paul says, along with being generous and along with being welcoming, you also have to be a blessing, particularly to your enemies. You're a blessing to your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This, this apparently has application to those who were non-Christians, those who were literally persecuting uh, believers, but it obviously has application to all relationships. And this is another expression of love to those you wouldn't naturally love. One of the truest expressions of setting aside your own interests, one of the truest expressions of taking up your cross, dying to yourself, putting your Uh, your own interest aside in the interest of others is that we don't retaliate when we're attacked. It's in our nature, or I should say it's in our flesh to want to always respond, to always want to 
get a pound of flesh for everyone that's taken in us. I was reading a story this week about a tribe in a remote part of the Pacific and they had all kinds of trinkets or all kinds of things hanging on strings around their house and somebody was visiting a tribe said, what, what are these decorations that you have around your house? He said, oh, those, each one of those are symbols of when someone did us wrong and they'll hang there until we get them back. I mean, that's, you may not do that in your house, but you do that mentally. I mean, you got these, you got these things in your mind, your heart, these hurts, these pains, these offenses, these slights, and you're holding on to them. We're in a society that celebrates that. Everyone fighting, everyone quarreling, everyone suing, everyone retaliating, getting back at the ones who get you. Someone steps out of line with what you want, what you think. They get a curse, not a blessing. You get a tweet storm, a mockery on social media because it's all about retaliation. Makes me think of the story about a husband and wife who leaving their wedding ceremony back in the days of horses and buggies. And they were driving along and the groom was driving and the horse jumped a little bit and he just said to him, that's one. Driving on a little bit further, a horse jumped again. He said, that's two. Goes a little bit further and the horse jumps a third time. He says, that's three. Pulls out his gun and shoots him. His wife said, what are you doing? That's terrible. He said, that's one. (laughs) It's in our blood. It's what we do. If not verbally, physically, we retaliate to people. If people get out of line. But Jesus doesn't teach us that. He says in Luke 6, love your enemies. Do good to those who mistreat you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. He teaches it not only in principle and in word, but in action. You remember as he hung on a cross, mocked by people, jeering at him. They literally were gambling at his feet for his clothing. And with what breath he could muster as his lungs were filling with fluid and his joints were being pulled out by the weight of his body on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He looks on them in all of their sinful activity. He just says, you know, it's just blind foolishness. If they really understood, they wouldn't be acting this way. They wouldn't be treating me this way. So don't give them what they deserve. Forgive them, he says. Tremendous amount of grace. You see, Stephen, who in Acts chapter 7 tried to preach the gospel to his own countrymen and they surround him and begin to cast stones at him. And at the very end of that chapter in verse 60, as he is bleeding out and dying, he looks up to heaven and says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Don't treat them the way they deserve to be treated. This is what Paul's saying in Romans 12. When those who come against you do as they will, don't respond, don't retaliate, refrain from cursing. Instead, 
bless. You say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to bless someone? Well, in the simplest terms, it's the opposite of cursing. Instead of saying ill things, you say kind things. I mean, blessing would begin, I guess, as Jesus demonstrated, by praying for people. Praying for them, as Jesus even taught in Matthew chapter uh, 5. Pray for those who persecute you, mistreat you. Pray that their eyes be opened, of course. Pray for their safety. Pray that God would deal gently with them. It would obviously involve forgiving, just as Jesus had prayed. Forgiving them, meaning that you set aside whatever the offense is. You don't, you don't operate as if it had happened. You don't treat them as if it had happened. You forgive them. But blessing would also mean speaking kindly of them, which is basically what the word bless means. It takes the word goodness and puts it with the word logos, and you have eulogos or eulogy, as we sometimes say, whenever we stand in front of a group of people at at someone's funeral, and we don't recount all of the terrible things they did. We say kind things. I remember doing a funeral one time. A guy had fallen out of a tree and I didn't know him. Someone from the community had called me and said, hey, pastor, would you do this funeral? I was like, sure. Sat down with the family and I wanted to find something that I could say about the guy. I didn't know him. So I said, you know, tell me a little bit about, uh, about the, your son. And they said, well, he was a scoundrel. And I mean, they just, they didn't give me much to work with, you know, but you're still trying to find something. You try to find something to say about the life of somebody. This is what it means to bless. It means to speak well of. In fact, in the New Testament, this word is almost always associated with the Lord. Speaking blessings of the Lord, meaning that we speak about His attributes and we speak about His good deeds. And so, by blessing rather than cursing, we begin by committing ourselves to speak of the good qualities of the good deeds of those who hurt us. To draw attention to those things. And when the circumstances are appropriate, we even bless them by speaking directly to them. Expressing our love to them. Blessing them might also mean speaking with gentleness. As the Proverbs say, a gentle answer stirs up, uh, uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath, excuse me. So blessing them would actually be not saying things which are provocative to them or, or stirring them up unnecessarily. It's, it's not speaking them with harsh words or insensitive words. And then finally, we might say blessing them involves just being thankful. Thankful. You say, how can you be thankful for someone persecuting you? Are you thankful the way Paul was thankful in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says, I've learned... After praying three times that the Lord would remove a thorn in his flesh, he says, I've learned to rejoice with insults, with persecutions, with injuries. Why? Because those things helped him see his weakness. And when I'm weak, he says, I'm strong. So you're grateful in the, in the sense of Proverbs 15. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise, but whoever ignores instruction despises himself. He who listens to reproof gains intelligence. You're thankful because 
Maybe what they're saying is unfounded and it's being used by the Lord to just drive you closer to Him. Or maybe at times there's some truth in what they're saying, even if it is exaggerated and uh, blown out of proportion, and yet the Lord uses it in your life to mature you. And so you're grateful, you're genuinely grateful for those who are persecuting. We can add to this an 11th response to God's mercy and love in our lives, in verse 15, Paul says that we also need to be sympathetic. We need to be sympathetic. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, he says. It's probably still coming out of Paul's understanding that jealousy and envy and malice and hatred, they're the natural inclination of our flesh. And so, the mind that is truly responding to the grace of God, it will be rejoicing Not in just simply your own successes, not wallowing in your own hurts. It will be rejoicing in the blessings and the successes of others. And it will be burdened by the pains and the setbacks of others. You see, normally we we only find joy in the things that, that are, we might say, for our own advantage. Those things are only working to our own charm and our own advancement. But Paul says we don't need to be that way. In fact, I think for some people, even their acts of sympathy are calculated. Calculated to only show sympathy to certain people who they think might benefit them somewhere down the road, but there's all kinds of people around them in the church of God particularly that just, they're just indifferent to. They're not special, they're not uh, elevated, they're not well positioned, they're not wealthy, they're not well educated, they're not anything, and so you you just walk past them all the time, never inquiring after the burdens that they're bearing, you're not weeping together with them. But what Paul's talking about is this grace of God, this transforming grace of God that leads you to a disinterest in yourself, a disinterest in your own advantages. And so when you see the success and the joy of others, you're not caught by envy and jealousy, but you truly feel a sense of joy. You have the ability to step into their shoes for a moment and to sense the joy that's coming to them at that moment. Or on the other side, you don't see those who are weeping and assume that they are too much of a downer too much of a drag on your own joy, and so you're going to avoid them. You certainly don't look at their weakness as an opportunity to step over them or pass them or whatever. You don't see their failure and their pain as your gain. Paul says we all with one body, when one member suffers, we all suffer. So there's no rejoicing. And there's no indifference. You are deeply burdened by the struggles, by the trials, by the temptations, and even by the failures of your brothers and your sisters. You're not just turning your back. You sense that you are personally hurt when they are hurt. You know, I was trying to think of a place that that teaches this in in Scripture, and I, 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 I... 
was thinking of one that jumps out at least to my mind because it's one that I experience is over in Hebrews uh, chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And this is about pastors and teachers, but really it could well be said about anybody in the church. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch of your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I just know that from personal experience. When, 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 when there are burdens in my own life and my energy is drained away, it detracts from what the Lord has called me to be able to do with the full focus and energy that I need to be doing it. And that would be true of anyone. I mean, you have someone who's serving as a Bible study teacher. You have someone who's serving as a a community group leader. You have someone who's serving in evangelism. You have someone who's serving on mission teams. You have someone who's serving even just just lifting uh, chairs and, and rolling up carpet. You have someone who's doing whatever they're doing in the church. And when they are hurting, it hurts everyone. Because they're not serving in the fullness of their strength. And so you, you've got to weep with those who weep because their burdens become your burdens and the whole entire body of Christ is hurt, Paul says, when one member is hurt. Their disadvantage then is your disadvantage. And, and by the way, their joy is your joy. When you see them growing, when you see them blessed, when you see them energized because of God's great blessings in their life, you're going to receive the blessing that comes from whatever God is doing in their life. And so you weep with those who weep. You rejoice with those who rejoice. And one more this morning, a twelfth response to God's love and mercy in our lives. He says in verse 16, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony. Literally, think the same thing towards one another. That's what it says. The same thing towards one another, think. It's not thinking the same thing as one another. He's not suggesting here that that we all have the same kinds of ideas, but that we all have the same attitudes. This is the basis of Christian unity. Everywhere you see this same kind of language throughout the New Testament, this language of unity, it always has to do with attitudes. Attitudes towards one another. In fact, look with me at Philippians 2 for just a second. Philippians 2, which uses identical terminology, but you see it played out there. Paul says in Philippians 2, 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Well, what are you talking about? Well, he immediately qualifies that in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So there's no promise that you're going to just turn up one day and be a bunch of people who have all the same desires, the same choices, the same judgments, and the same interests. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying in the midst of all your diverse interests that you should have this attitude towards one another This attitude of servanthood, this attitude of wanting to come alongside and esteem others as more important, more valuable than your own. 
the opinions of others as more important than your own. So back over in Romans chapter 12, this is what Paul's saying, and he says it this way. Live in harmony or think the same toward one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So with all the variations and all the differences, social and economic and ethnic, that come into the congregation, he's telling them to associate Associate with those outside of your group. Associate with the lowly. Think the same thing about them as you do about your group. And don't be wise in your own sight. Don't assume that your experience, that your track record, that your perspective, that your view, that your whatever is the only way to view a situation or life. That's being wise in your own eyes. Paul says we have to have harmony. And the way we do that is we set aside all those natural prejudices, all those natural biases, all those natural manifestations of pride. And we develop an attitude towards others, which was the attitude of Christ, who although he had a a position in equality with God, he didn't latch on to that, cling to that, grasp to that, but he emptied himself and became a servant to all. These are difficult things to do. To give up your interests, to give up your financial comforts to support the needs of the saints, to give up your comforts in order to open up your life to strangers, to give up your desires for retaliation and instead bless, To give up your self-focus and rejoice with others when they succeed. To weep with them when they're burdened. To give up your high opinion of your own opinions and your own status. And to equally treat all men the same. You've got to die to yourself. That's what the grace of God does. It causes us to present ourselves living sacrifices. One writer summarized it well. He says, when you're forgiven or neglected or purposely set at naught and you sting and hurt with the insult of oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that's dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of and your wishes are cross, your Advice is disregarded, your, your opinions ridiculed, you refuse to let the anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that's dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, or any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with folly, waste, extravagance, and spiritual insensibility and endure it as Jesus endured it, that's dying to self. When you're content with any circumstances, any food, any offering, any clothing, any climate, any society, any solicitude, any interruption by the will of God, that's dying to self. See, in so many ways, these qualities are simple. You just need to get out of the way. You need to get out of the way Your goals need to be set aside. Your interests, your pursuits, 
your toys, all those things that consume your money and your time and your affections, your thoughts. Just set them aside. And you'll be ready to love inside and out. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are challenged again, particularly as we think about so many who demonstrated this gracious walk from Macedonian believers to the Apostle Paul himself to Stephen all the way to our Lord and Savior. We see it, Lord, demonstrated in the flesh and deficient so many times in our own life. But let this day, let it be a day of repentance. Let it be a day of confession. Let it be a day of change. And would you transform us as we meditate again upon your grace, transform us into the loving people that you've called us to be. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.